Hey there, thanks for tuning in to St. John's Asheville Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope, and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. I will be reading from Psalms 118, 5 to 29, which is on page 492 of the Pew Bibles. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord, and the Lord answered me and set me in a broad place. With the Lord on my side, I do not fear. What can mortals do to me? The Lord is on my side to help me. I shall look in triumph to those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to put confidence in mortals. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. All nations surround me in the name of the Lord. I cut them off. They surround me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They blazed like a fire of thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my might. He has become my salvation. There are glad songs of victory in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has punished me severely, but he did not give me over to death. Open me to the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we beseech you, O Lord. O Lord, we beseech you, give us success. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has given us light. Bind the festal procession with branches up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And the second reading is from Matthew 21, 33 to 46. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to the tenants and went to another country. When the harvest time had come, he sent his slaves to the tenants to collect his produce. But the tenants seized his slaves and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again he sent other slaves, more than the first, and they treated them in the same way. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come on, let us kill him and get his inheritance. So they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Now when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him. He will put those wretches uh, wretches to a miserable death and lease the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the produce at the harvest time. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is amazing in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that produces the fruits of the kingdom. The one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, and it will crush anyone whom it falls. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they realized that he was speaking about them. 
They wanted to arrest him, but they feared the crowd because they regarded him as a prophet. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, 10 or 15 maybe years ago, there was a popular meme about uh, being vis-a-vis doing. Uh, If you were alive at that time, you might remember this. A lot lot of talk about doing, 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 bad, bad, bad. Being, being good. Doing is the default mode, of course, of Sydney, the standard Sydney rushing around, getting stuff done, buying, selling, working, earning. And uh, the recognition that's involved in this uh, distinction is that that often sort of overly intense scheduling came at the expense of something. It, it had a personal cost associated with it, of, of clarity about who you were, of rest, maybe even of peace and joy. And so the, the meme suggested that being needed to be rehabilitated, and in particular rehabilitated as the primary category. Being comes before doing. You have to watch out, make sure that your doing doesn't compromise or damage your being. And I I think that you go down a couple of years and a few sort of generations of ideas and you end up with self-care. What's more, there's something I think that's resonant with the gospel about this. Uh, So often our doing can be a form of justification. Uh, a form of self-justification, of making sure that you can kind of prove yourself to someone. Uh, If you've been around Christian things for a long time, you'll know that uh, it's not God that you've got to prove yourself to. It's only Jesus who proves us to God. But but actually, that can still sort of leave us wanting to prove ourselves to other people or even to ourselves. And to the degree that that's the case, then there's plenty to make us suspicious about all this doing But the really interesting thing about our passage for today, this uh, so-called parable of the wicked tenants, is that it is a doing parable more than a being parable. It's part of Jesus' ongoing answer to the question of his authority, which we began to look at last week. Uh, Jesus enters the temple uh, the day after he's cleansed it, he's cleared it, he's turned over the tables, it's all been a bit of a chaos kind of moment. And and the chief priests and the elders of the people come to him and say, why are you doing this? By what authority do you do this? And and Jesus knows that it's a trap, and so he does that in his beautiful and wise and insightful and slightly infuriating way. He doesn't answer their question. He He answers their question with a question. And they can't answer his question, and so he says, well, no, 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 I'm not going to answer your question either. Instead, he says, while I've got you here, while I've got your attention, let me tell you some stories, some parables. And he tells a parable about a man and his two sons, uh, and then he tells this parable about tenants in the vineyard. And we're going to take some time to look at this under three headings. Uh, Firstly, the landowner's project, then secondly, the tenant's problem, and then finally, the landowner's patience before drawing the threads together uh, and applying this to ourselves. So first then, the landowner's project. Uh, Jesus starts the parable, verse 33, like this. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Now, these 
people who uh, Jesus is telling the parable to were Old Testament scholars. They were the leaders of God's people, Israel, and they would know that the vineyard in the Old Testament was an image that was used to represent Israel, who were the people of God. And so Isaiah chapter 5 says, My beloved, that's God, had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines and he built a watchtower in the middle of it and he hewed out a wine vat in it. That sounds a bit familiar, right? The people listening to Jesus would have heard him speaking about this vineyard. They would have known this familiar Old Testament image and they would have said to themselves, ah, yeah, yeah, cool, I I know this one. I know this one, Jesus. The landowner represents God. The vineyard represents Israel. But then there's a third character. There's tenants. And that's a bit of a surprise. But by the end of the parable, it's pretty clear that the tenants represent the religious leaders. One of the things we're supposed to notice in Jesus' description is just how much the landowner has invested in his vineyard. Uh, Notice that what's described is that he plants the vineyard. He doesn't just inherit it or purchase the land. Um, He has a vision for what he wants done in the vineyard. And so he, he builds a wall around it to keep the vermin and wild animals out. He, he puts a watchtower in it to keep it safe from thieves and robbers and, and to rest in during the heat of the day. He digs a wine press into it, uh, an expensive piece of specialised equipment. And, and the point is that this vineyard is totally loaded. Uh, the tenants who, who uh, lease it get beautifully established with all the equipment they could possibly need. And and to take a business analogy, and I I quite like the idea that Jesus has a business story to tell us, to take a business analogy, you you might even call this a turnkey operation. It's like they're locked and loaded and ready to go. And so here's the thing that I just want to draw to your attention. The landowner does it because he wants an outcome. He wants fruit. Fruit. His purpose in this, his project here, is to be fruitful. You can see in verse 43 um, how the parable unfolds. Uh, At the end, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and will be given to a people that produces the fruits of the kingdom. Uh, This is a doing parable. God invests in the vineyard in order to be productive, productive of the fruit of the kingdom. And when the original tenants are not, he says it's going to be taken away from them and given to people who will be fruitful. So as we begin to allow this parable to marinate into us and to inform us and to reshape our worldview a little bit, um, take on that thought. God has invested in you and your life for a purpose. The purpose is that you be fruitful, productive for him. It raises a question, doesn't it? Uh, I, I'm not much of a farmer. Actually, I'm, I'm really nothing of a farmer. Um, I have what's called a black thumb because uh, I kill most things. 
what would fruit be for me? What would fruit be for you? How would you know that you're fulfilling the purpose of God for which he has invested in you? At the, at the foundational level, of course, the fruit of the kingdom is obedience to Jesus. People whose lives are characterised, as Jesus said, by a love of God and a love of other people. Uh, people whose lives are characterised by the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, as the Apostle Paul puts it. People whose lives are characterised by responsiveness to the Word of God and who let it search them. Because like the tenants in the vineyard, God has been incredibly generous, incredibly engaged, incredibly providing for each of us. He gives us not only the material blessings uh, that we have, but also new life in Jesus, adoption into his family, pouring out his spirit into our hearts as a down payment on the kingdom. A greater revelation of himself than Israel and her leaders ever had, and it's all gift. And it's all for a purpose, that we bear fruit as the produce of God's project. Which leads to point two, the tenant's problem. Let's jump back into the story that Jesus is telling, uh, because in verse 34 he said, when the harvest time had come, he sent his slaves to the tenants to collect the produce. Uh, the, the tenants are farmers uh, they're there uh, in order to work the vineyard um, that has been equipped by the owner. And the owner goes away on a voyage to a far country. Apparently, um, it would take, on average, about four years between the time that a vineyard was planted and the time that the first harvest was harvested. So it's a long journey that he goes on, but then they didn't have aeroplanes, so he probably just was a big, long walk. And he sends for his share of the crop because, you know, it's his vineyard. He's invested in it. He's invested in it for a purpose. He has a project. It's a program. It's not just being, it's doing. But somewhere along the line, the tenants make a decision. It's a decision that you may resonate with. Uh, from time to time, you say they say, you know what? We don't want to be renters. We want to be owners. But they don't want to save up a deposit. Actually, we know from writings at the time that if a landlord didn't collect rent for three years, and you might suggest this to your landlord if you're um, you know, so inclined, if you could avoid paying rent for three years and just sort of squat on the land for long enough without anyone coming to you, then the land would just kind of transfer over to you. And, and that's what these tenants want. They want to be owners. But they don't just refuse. In fact, they do much worse, don't they? Uh, but the tenants seized his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned another and again he sent other slaves, more than the first, and they treated them in the same way. 
Jesus is inviting us to see something about the human heart, something very deep and real and important. Each of us is a tenant of what God has entrusted to us to be his stewards. Each of us is a tenant, but we want to be owners. Because owners can do whatever they want with the vineyard. And and I suspect that all of us in our hearts know the tug of this experience. We don't like to be told what to do. We don't like anybody telling us how to live our lives, what to produce with our lives. My money. No one tells me how to spend my money. My time. That's my business, how I spend it and who I spend it with. My body. That one hits home, doesn't it? My body. The thought that someone else could have a say over how we use our bodies is utterly countercultural. My choices. I get to decide what I do and how I live. And Jesus is laying before us a different world, a different world in which you are not an owner, you're a tenant, a steward of your money, your time, your body, your choices, and that it all belongs to our creator who has made us and has poured into us be generous to us with a purpose that we would produce kingdom fruit. Our lives, says Jesus, belong to God. And every one of us is a tenant. And he's the owner. And the question that the parable raises is, the fairly urgent question, of what happens when tenants try to become owners. What, what happens? What is the owner, the actual owner, going to do about it? Which leads to point three, the landowner's patience. Because I think perhaps the strangest thing about the parable is the patience of the landowner. It is extreme. It's almost absurd. Um, he sends the first group of administrators to um, retrieve his share of the harvest and, and these, these are treated appallingly. Uh, one is, is beaten, the other one is killed, and the other one's stoned. And, and so, so what does the owner do? You know what the owner does? He just doubles down. He does the same thing, apparently expecting different results, which, of course, according to Einstein, is the definition of madness. And, and when nothing changes, he sends his son, thinking that they will respect his son, But given that respect has not exactly been a long suit for the tenants, I don't know why he thinks that. But nonetheless, he sends his son, and and to no one's surprise, the son suffers the same fate as the slaves. Mind you, I'm not sure that we're supposed to find the logic of the tenants that much more persuasive. After all, who thinks that the way things go is that if you kill servants and then kill some more servants and then kill a son then the consequence of all that is 
hey, guess what? Now we're going to be left alone to live happily ever after. That's not how things work. They overestimate the patience of the landowner. But Jesus is way too good a storyteller to state the point himself. Instead, he asks the audience, verse 40, now when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they say to Jesus, he's going to kill them. He will put those wretches to a miserable death. I mean, it's a little bit sort of formal perhaps. And lease the vineyard, and here it is, lease the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the produce at the harvest time. And then Jesus springs the trap. Yep. You bet that is exactly what makes sense. And that's exactly what's happening right now, right under your noses, except you, chief priests and Pharisees, you're not judges outside the scenario looking on and saying what's going to happen. You're the villains in the scenario. They are, says Jesus, in fulfilment of Scripture, rejecting the stone which has become the cornerstone, Jesus, the key to all of God's plans and purposes. And then, I mean, this is just so fantastic irony. I don't know how Matthew kept a straight face. I, I, I bet he sort of giggled when he wrote it, right? In awesome irony, they've just heard a story about people who kill a son, right? So what do they do? Verse 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they realised that he was speaking about them and so they were appalled and repented and rend their clothes and rend their hearts and hope. Nope. They want to arrest Jesus so they can kill him. It's like, they just don't get it, do they? But they feared the crowds because they, the crowds, regarded Jesus as a prophet. What are we to make of this parable? How does this uh, speak to us? Um, two points. First, as I said at the start of the sermon, the, the parable is so interesting, I think, because it really is about doing more than it's about being. The framework in which it paints its picture is that God is in business. God is in the business of planting a vineyard in order to bear fruit. That's his game. And that we are positioned as privileged, blessed tenants with a delegated responsibility to be about the business of the owner. Well, let me, let me take that and put it in a slightly different way, a way that might resonate with you a little more. Your job as you seek to live your life in the light of Christ is to be about the master's business, which means to connect your story to God's story. That's your job, to connect your story to God's story. And that has become an increasingly challenging thing to do. Uh, there's a reason for that. Uh, the story that we are told in every movie that you watch, in every TV episode that you download, in every podcast and every advertisement in our secular culture, the story that you are told again and again and again and again is that there is no story. That there is no overarching narrative and certainly not one from God which has the form of an external authority 
to which you and I are to conform ourselves. There is no story except footnote, the story that there is no story. And the greatest evil that you can perpetrate is to pretend that there is such a thing and seek to impose it on someone else or even seek to impose it on yourself. Because, you see, very, very importantly, there is a flip side to the claim that there's no story out there and that is that there's only a story in here. Or rather that there are just millions of stories in here, in our hearts. And that the job of life is to look deep, deep inside yourself and so to discover, to unlock, to create your own story. And then just make sure it doesn't interfere with anyone else's. Now, what's really important to see is that there is enough truth in this to make it plausible. Uh, We know the way in which the idea of an external story can be imposed brutally and destructively, used as a power more to exploit and exclude, and that to reject false stories like that uh, is actually an important task. Uh, Freedom is not just a slogan of the French Revolution, right? Liberty. Freedom is the great promise of the gospel. For freedom, Christ has set you free. If the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Really free. Actually free. But here's the thing I want you to notice. You see, one way to describe the tenets in this parable is that they are hell-bent on ignoring the story of the owner and writing their own story. And so the first way in which this parable touches us is to ask, how are you going at connecting your story into God's story? All the different elements of your life, your relationships, your study or your work, your abilities, your resources, your capacities, all the different threads of your life, how are they weaving together in such a way that your story tells God's story, that your story submits to God's story? Because you're a tenant, not an owner. Notice that connecting your story to God's story involves three tasks. One is knowing God's story. The second one is knowing your story. And the third one is knowing how to connect those two things together. And as I say, I I think that's becoming increasingly challenging. I suspect the least difficult is knowing God's story. Um, It's it's not overly complicated to to know that God can be likened to a landowner who has a vineyard and he wants to see fruit, that creation is not only a gift, it's a project. It's a great, grand project of God to establish a world in which life and peace reign. That's the business that God is in. That's his story. More difficult is knowing our own stories. I suspect uh, many of us don't really see our lives as stories at all. We're just sort of getting through from day to day. You just do the same thing tomorrow as you did today because that's just how life goes. It's just a, a sequence of events. Living amongst our families and friends. 
avoiding as much as possible the potholes of life, having fun along the way. A sequence of events is called a chronicle. And the difference between a story and a chronicle is that a story makes sense of all the different bits. It holds them together because they all point in the same direction and towards the same goal. They line up. Do you have a sense of the story of your life? And, and if that's difficult, then making sure that my story is connected to God's story organically, intrinsically integrated into it so that the goal that holds my story together is the same goal that infuses God's story, well, that's very challenging. Now, I'm not going to say more about that at the moment. Um, it, it, I just want to leave it there as the challenge. Uh, it's actually part of how we've articulated our mission as a church, uh, that we are not only to be a place where we find grace and learn hope, the being side, if you like, but also more and more that we are people who are light, the light of Christ in our communities and workplaces and amongst our families and our friends. That light is one way to express the fruit of the kingdom, that God has entrusted to us and calls us to bear and to yield to him. Because not only are we redeemed to be, we're also redeemed to do. And, and you're going to hear a lot more in the coming uh, months and years about what it is to be light for Christ in our communities. Which leads to the second point. You see, in its context, of course, the parable is an act of denunciation uh, of the false leadership of the chief priests and the Pharisees. Jesus is stating in terrifyingly clear terms that the kingdom is going to be ripped away from them and given to someone else who will bear the fruit that the owner is so determined should be the result of his work of resourcing this vineyard. And it only takes a moment of self-reflection to get to the question, uh, I, yes, I guess I have been given a lot. I, what's going to mean that I do any better than them? Maybe God's patience is going to run out with me as well. Except that we know something, we see something, we have something that takes us beyond the world of the parable. You see, in the parable, did you notice? The son is a mere victim. We, we learn almost nothing about the son, actually. The son is almost entirely passive as the tenants do their worst to him. And, and whilst, while there's truth in that, in the sense that those who reject the stone, those who crucify the Lord are entirely and utterly culpable in that act. It's not the largest part of the truth. Because what we know in the gospel is that the son is not passive at all. He is utterly active. He's entirely decisive. He is wonderfully in command. It is his fixed purpose and intention deliberately to set his face to Jerusalem. It is his 
great triumph that he puts aside the temptation to pass up the cup of the wrath of God and rather he drinks it to the very dregs. You see, the son, unlike in the story, doesn't just die, he dies for us. He dies for the wicked tenants. He bears their sin. It's true that the stone will crush anyone on whom it falls. But it's more true that he was crushed for our iniquities, that upon him was the punishment that made us whole, that by his bruises we are healed. And it's as we see that, it's as our hearts are gripped more and more by a grace that dies for wicked tenants, for enemies, that overcomes evil with good, that we will know that to conform our stories to God's story, to have all the threads of our lives all weaved together to tell his beautiful tapestry, well, that's not death. That's not crushing. That's not inhibiting. That's pure freedom. That's great grace. There is nothing to be feared in conforming your story to God's story. There is nothing to be lost there except your guilt and your shame and your slavery. There is only the freedom and joy of forgiveness and fruitfulness as you hear those utterly glorious words from your Saviour and your Lord. Well done. Done. Good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we lift our hearts to you in praise, in worship, that you have invested in us, that you have blessed us with so much. You've given it to us for a purpose, that we bear fruit for you. And so we pray that as we see the gift of your Son who covers all our sins and weaknesses and failures in the beauty and power of his grace, that you would transform us, fill our hearts, that we would more and more bear fruit, the fruit of your kingdom, for your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.